from Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Thursday, April 12th. I'm Marco Werman. A fragile ceasefire takes hold in Syria, but the U.N. says the Syrian government isn't fully complying. Also, South Sudan ups the ante in its dispute with Sudan. What the members of parliament were saying is they're not looking for war, but war has been brought to them and they will not sit and do nothing about it. And later, in the footsteps of the original James Bond author. I've had this odd um, obsession with Ian Fleming and I've written about him. I put him in one of my novels. PRI's The World is made possible in part by Medtronic, searching for runners who benefit from medical technology to run in the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon. Application and information available at medtronic.com slash globalheroes. And by WGBH, producer of Lydia Celebrates America, presenting weddings, something borrowed, something new. Lydia cordially invites viewers to be her plus one on this cross-country matrimonial odyssey, Tuesday, April 17th at 8, 7 Central on PBS. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. A single gunshot could derail the fragile ceasefire in Syria. That's what United Nations Chief Ban Ki-moon said earlier today. The UN-backed ceasefire went into effect early this morning. So far, it seems that Syrian government forces have mostly stopped their attacks, though they haven't withdrawn from all urban centers as demanded by the ceasefire plan. The man behind the plan, U.N. envoy Kofi Annan, is now urging the quick deployment of international observers to Syria. The BBC's Jim Muir is following the situation from Beirut. And as far as you can tell, Jim, has the violence in Syria really stopped? It certainly hasn't stopped altogether, but it's, uh, the, the general level has come down quite substantially. Activists are reporting up to 20 people killed by security forces in a variety of incidents, some involving shellfire, some involving shooting, sniping, uh, including a mother and her very young baby daughter. And of course, the government also is reporting that a roadside bomb hit a military bus and killed a colonel and wounded 24 other people. So accusations from both sides of uh, breaches, the uh, activists back theirs up with the video on YouTube and so on. Um, Nobody I think expected this to be a total success. And of course, these infractions that are being reported show that it is very fragile. And above all, because government troops and tanks and heavy weaponry remain in population centers, that is an obvious source of friction. And it looks like being uh, one of the first targets for Kofi Annan and the UN to try and tackle to get compliance there so that the friction can be reduced. Now, the spokesman for the Syrian Ministry of Foreign Affairs, uh, Jihad Makdisi, says the success of the Annan peace plan also depends on surrounding countries dropping their support for the Syrian opposition. Have you heard any reaction to the ceasefire in neighboring countries? They have been pretty quiet about it. They're very skeptical. You're talking about countries like Turkey, Saudi Arabia, and also Qatar in the Arab camp who've been supporting the opposition. In many ways, they are hawks. They would possibly like this whole process to fail so that they can get on with backing uh, armed opposition and trying to bring the regime down because they're a bit worried that the regime will survive all this and that it'll be a kind of holding operation that uh, will somehow allow the regime to cling on and then perhaps opposition will fade away. So they haven't said very much about all this. I mean, it's a complex bunch of diplomatic uh, choreography here. What's next? 
Well, I think what's next is uh, trying to consolidate the ceasefire and then trying to get some kind of political process going. And that that is going to be a real contest because the regime would like to feel that it has crushed resistance and it would go into any kind of negotiations from a position of strength. But then it seems that the Russians have weighed in. They're the ones who've twisted the arms and got agreement in Damascus and got agreement to the ceasefire and so on. If they go ahead and implement the ceasefire properly in terms of uh, Kofi Annan's plan. That means pulling out of towns and cities with their security forces and stopping the repression. Well, a lot of people reckon that would allow large parts of the country to fall peacefully into the hands of the opposition, Mm. and that would weaken the regime's position. So there's going to be a huge contest in which all the regional powers and international powers will be trying to make their weight felt in the eventual outcome. Jim, thank you very much. We'll leave it there. You're most welcome, Marco. The BBC's Jim Muir in Beirut. The world's newest country, South Sudan, is also the scene of a tense standoff today. Tensions have been rising between South Sudan and Sudan ever since the South declared independence last July. Those tensions have turned into intense fighting in disputed regions near the new border. This week, southern military forces occupied an oil-rich town that was under northern control. The South says it's in response to previous attacks by the North. And today, South Sudan's president says he won't withdraw his troops. Now there's concern that an all-out war could break out between South Sudan and Sudan. The BBC's Nyambura Wambugu is in Juba, the capital of South Sudan. Uh, Nyambura, you heard the president of South Sudan speak today at parliament. What did he say and what was his tone? His tone was defiant. South Sudanese have been complaining that their president has not spoken to them in regards to the conflict that's ongoing in the border region. And when he came to parliament today, I think he came to allay fears that he was doing nothing to protect the territories of South Sudan. Let's listen to some of President Salva Kiir's remarks today in parliament. We've always believed that everything can be resolved by peaceful means. This time... I said that I will not order the forces to withdraw. I said this not because, you know, we are interested in the war, but because we want to resolve this problem once and for all. Nyambura, once and for all, that sounds pretty ominous. And judging from the applause, it sounds like the president of South Sudan has support. Do you, do you think this is rhetoric or reality? Judging from the mood in Parliament today, I think it's probably reality. What the members of Parliament were saying is that they are not looking for war, but war has been brought to them and they will not sit and watch their children and their people continuously being bombed and do nothing about it. So what is the North saying about this, the the nation of Sudan, and what are its troops and air force doing? Khartoum says they're not the aggressor, that in fact they're being attacked. So it seems more of a game of tit for tat or blame. Where the truth lies, it's hard to verify because there are very few independent people working in the border regions that can verify for a fact what's really going on. We get the side from Khartoum and we get the side from Juba, but where the truth really lies, it's hard to tell. So the North needs South Sudan's oil. South Sudan needs the North's infrastructure for for both to profit from the oil. Has anyone in South Sudan and Juba maybe told you that becoming independent might not have been such a good idea after all? On the contrary, people in Juba 
what they've been saying was that South Sudan was poor without the oil. South Sudan remains poor. And even taking away the oil revenues makes very little difference to the ordinary people in South Sudan. But then again, you do have to realize that when it comes to dealing with the Republic of Sudan, there is a sense of nationalism that tends to supersede common sense here in the South. And um, if it means suffering without the oil, that's what the people seem to be ready to put up with. You know, Sudan, Nyambora, has been at war for generations. I'm just wondering, what have Southern Sudanese told you about just their sheer fatigue with what might be another conflict? I think because this country has been at war for such a long time, it's not that difficult to go back or to convince the population to go back to war as you would in other countries that have not been to war before. Now, what people have been telling me, and I have been asking this question over the past few weeks, this country might go back to war. How do you feel about it? And what they say is, we shall defend our country. We shall not be invaded. And we are ready for whatever comes. So it does seem like the government of South Sudan has the mandate from its people to do whatever it takes to, as the president says, sort this out once and for all. The BBC's Nambura Wambugu in Juba, the capital of South Sudan. The Central Asian nation of Uzbekistan is a former Soviet republic that's long been decried for human rights violations. Torture, religious persecution, and arbitrary arrests are widely reported. Now a BBC documentary reveals an apparent government program to sterilize women, often against their will and sometimes without their knowledge. Journalist Natalia Antalava is the reporter in the documentary. Natalia, these are disturbing and extraordinary claims, it's got to be said first off. How is it, uh, though, that a woman can be sterilized without knowing that she's been sterilized? There are several ways. Most women, the procedure is done after women give birth. Several doctors have told me that the number of uh, caesareans in recent years has increased dramatically. And it's normally after the C-section that the procedure is performed. Uh, According to the interviews that we've conducted, we are talking about tens of thousands of women. The doctors uh, told me that they're given quotas each month uh, for how many women they need to sterilize. These quotas range from one woman a week to up to eight women a week in rural areas where the program seems to be enforced much more strictly. And some of these women do give consent, but others, this happens without their knowledge. So it happens either by tying of fallopian tubes after the C-section or by hysterectomy. Here is one woman who told me her story. After I gave birth to my second child... Doctors told me that I shouldn't have any more. I was under a full anaesthetic. They didn't ask me anything. They just cut out my uterus. I didn't know about it. Five months later, I went to have an ultrasound because I was in so much pain. The doctor said, you don't have a uterus anymore. I cried. He said, what you need more kids for? Two is enough for you. So this is one of many heartbreaking stories that I heard. But how do you know that this is a government program and why would the government of Uzbekistan want women sterilized? Well, because the government denies that this is happening in the first place, you know, this is a question that we would put to the government, but they say it's not happening. So the logic behind it is uh, is hard to judge. The doctors say it's happening because the government is trying to control population. 
there was actually um, a decree by the Ministry of Health from 2010 that states that all clinics across Uzbekistan should be equipped with sterilization equipment. However, it emphasizes that the procedure should be done on a voluntary basis with the informed consent. From the evidence we gathered, that doesn't always happen. The doctors I talked to have said that they do receive direct orders from their bosses, the heads of hospitals, the heads of local administration, and get these government quotas on how many women they need to sterilize each month. Clearly, the government of Uzbekistan isn't pleased with your story. In fact, they wouldn't let you into the country, so you had to do uh, a lot of your reporting by phone and by talking to Uzbeks who had left the country. The people who did speak with you, are, are they at any risk of retaliation by the government there? Well, we took very, very careful measures to make sure that we don't identify any of the people that are in the documentary. They certainly are at risk. Uzbekistan is a sort of a country where speaking to a foreign journalist can land one in jail, and the jail prisons in Uzbekistan are notorious for torture. So I think people who talked about it took great risks. I've reported from many notorious dictatorships from Burma, from Syria, from Turkmenistan. But I must say, I have never, ever dealt with the extent of fear that seems to cloud over Uzbekistan. Okay, so the government uh, vehemently denies the sterilization program. But is anything being done to change the policy if it exists? Is there any pressure inside Uzbekistan or from the outside? There is, you can say, no dissent in Uzbekistan. It's just not tolerated at all. Many people that I talk to say that it's possible to put pressure on the government from the outside. Currently, the United States and Europe are trying to rebuild their relationship with Uzbekistan because Uzbekistan offers access to Afghanistan and alternative mm -hmm. access to Pakistan. So they need Uzbekistan to get troops in and out. And the U.S. Senate lifted sanctions on Uzbekistan, including ban on arms sales and so on. And human rights groups that I've been talking to are saying that this is an opportunity that also should be used to put some pressure on the government to end this practice. Natalia, we've got a link to your BBC documentary on Uzbekistan's sterilization program at theworld.org. Journalist Natalia Antalava, thank you very much. Thank you. Still ahead, a valuable Cezanne reappears on PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, helping inspire the next generation of healthcare innovators through Science Matters, a hands-on science guide for the entire family. Science Matters, available to classrooms and families at MedtronicFoundation.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Ian Fleming died in 1964, but his creation, James Bond, lives on in popular imagination and through the hugely successful Bond film franchise. And in recent years, Ian Fleming's estate has commissioned new 007 novels, first by Sebastian Folks in 2008 and then by Jeffrey Deaver in 2011. Now the latest to get the Bond assignment is best-selling British author William Boyd. The world's Carol Zoll has the story. As soon as you hear the words James Bond, the clichés start flowing. First, the Bond music. And then... My name's Bond. James Bond. Dry martini, lemon peel, shaken, not stirred. James, where on earth have you been? Money, Penny. So what's it like to attempt to write a new Bond story with all that literary and cultural baggage? 
That's the task facing 60-year-old author William Boyd, and he says he welcomes it. It's a challenge, but a very exciting one. I'm, I'm really looking forward to, to tackling it. Boyd says he grew up reading Ian Fleming and is a big Bond fan. I've had this odd um, obsession with Ian Fleming, and I've written about him. I put him in a, one of my novels. That novel was Any Human Heart, in which the real Fleming played a small but pivotal role in the life of the fictional Logan Montstewart. Now, Boyd will get to write about Fleming's fictional creation, and he acknowledges that there will be certain constraints. I mean, you've got to, as it were, tick the boxes of the Bond genre. On the other hand, he says those constraints aren't too onerous. You've actually got quite a free hand. I mean, you, you're given the character, and there are certain givens about that character which you understand, otherwise you wouldn't take on the job. Johnny Geller is the literary agent for the Ian Fleming estate, and also, as it happens, William Boyd's literary agent. He says it's not just the past books themselves that present a challenge for Boyd, but the global phenomenon that is Bond. The fascinating thing about the James Bond Ian Fleming world is that there's, you know, a large number of people who are kind of experts. You can find them on the internet, on blog sites. Um, they know a huge amount about each of the books and the stories of Ian Fleming himself. So they're quite an exacting audience. Still, both Boyd and his literary agent stress that this will be Boyd's book, and he'll take it just as seriously as all his other novels. You know, this is not a kind of Hollywood script rewrite. This is going to have William Boyd's name on it. You know, he wants it to be as good as the rest of his books. So he's also got to balance that with what is a James Bond novel. Boyd says that his novel will go back to classic Bond. It'll be set in 1969, five years after Ian Fleming died. He says he'll have to imagine what Fleming might have been writing about in 1969 had he been alive. I was alive in 1969, so it's a curious combination of my own personal uh, memories of, the, of that period and taking on the whole kind of Cold War geopolitical setup and um, having tremendous fun. Boyd says he won't be focusing on pyrotechnics or special effects the way the films have done. The films, in a way, rely on cars and guns and, and all that sort of thing. But in a novel, describing some elaborate gadget isn't quite the same as seeing it on the screen. So you're much better to fall back on story and character and various dilemmas that uh, the hero finds himself in than um, dressing it up with the, the latest high-tech available. The new novel will be out in 2013 to coincide with the 60th anniversary of the publication of Casino Royale, the very first Bond book. Do you expect me to talk? No, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die. That doesn't seem very likely. With talented writers like William Boyd creating new adventures for him, the world's favorite spy seems destined to live another day. For the world, I'm Carol Zoll. From a new James Bond on paper to a new Avengers on screen, a $260 million Hollywood blockbuster inspired by the Avengers comic book series opens worldwide later this month. Movies like that often make more money outside the U.S., so maximizing revenues in a big market like India is key. And the way to do that in the land of Bollywood is through music. The world's Aaron Schachter explains. Imagine a world in which Hollywood is desperate to recoup hundreds of millions of dollars spent on an action movie. Imagine that 
Sorry, I'll stop now. Imagine that it turns to one of the world's fastest-growing economies for that cash. In this dark hour of night, someone listened to my heart's condition in life. That's the plaintive cry that opens a Hindi music video made to promote the new Avengers flick. The song is called Hello and Hero. It's composed by Mumbai-based rock band Agni. And it's just the latest attempt by Hollywood to compete on Bollywood's home turf. And who can blame them? In a country with more than a billion people, there's a monster market for films. Anthony Kaufman writes the Real Politic blog on IndieWire.com. The only real key rival to um, Hollywood's output has always been Bollywood. It's a huge audience. It's a diverse audience. They like their movies. And um, for Hollywood to go in there and insert a Bollywood musical number seems to make sense. In India, soundtrack sales often account for as large a slice of revenue as ticket sales. So making music videos is a relatively cheap form of advertising. The so-called film songs are shown ad nauseum on music channels like MTV. So with no song for your movie, you've got nothing to sell. Gentlemen, what are you prepared to do? Well, Samuel L. Jackson, what are you prepared to do to take on Bollywood? Anthony Kaufman has a suggestion. I would like to see uh, all the guys from Avengers dancing around, you know, in a uh, Bollywood-style musical number. That would be something. Yes, it would. For The World, I'm Aaron Schachter. You can be damn sure we'll avenge it. Today's GeoQuiz isn't a movie yet, but if it were, you could call it The Serbian Job. Here's the plot. Back in the 1890s, painter Paul Cezanne was in Paris. One of his Impressionist paintings depicted a boy dressed in a red vest. Many years later, the painting became the prized possession of a private museum in Zurich, Switzerland. But then four years ago, it was stolen. The trail went cold, until today, when Serbian police announced they've recovered the boy in the red vest. Now here's the quiz. Can you name the two cities where Serbian police busted these suspected art thieves? One's easy. It's the capital of Serbia. The other is a central city about 100 miles to the south of the capital in the Morava River Valley. Crack this case if you can. The answer is coming up later in the program. I'm Marco Werman. Congo's warlords are brutal, but one of them stands out. Bosco is vicious. I interviewed a man uh, two years ago who was killed by Bosco about a year and a half ago, who said in my interview that it is easier for Bosco to kill a man than it is to order a soda. The story of Bosco Intaganda, ahead on the world. 
ERI's The World is made possible in part by Medtronic, searching for runners who benefit from medical technology to run in the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon. Application and information available at medtronic.com slash globalheroes. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH in Boston. This weekend marks 100 years since the sinking of the Titanic. You probably know that already. There are countless events marking the anniversary, including an auction of artifacts from the ocean liner, a cruise to the ship's final resting place in the Atlantic, and the re-release of James Cameron's 1997 blockbuster in 3D. But there's another Titanic movie that's getting some renewed attention, as the world's Alex Galifant reports. Like Cameron's movie, this one's simply titled Titanic. It features a love story and the sinking of the unsinkable ship. But there the similarities end. This Titanic was a piece of Nazi propaganda commissioned by Joseph Goebbels. In this story, the ship sank as a result of British greed. The film opens in the London Stock Exchange, says Randall Beitwork. He's an expert in Nazi propaganda at Calvin College. The share price of Titanic's parent company, White Star Line, is plunging. But not accidentally. The chairman of White Star, Bruce Ismay, is working to make it happen. And the way he's going to do that is to suggest that the company is in trouble because of the huge expenses in building the Titanic. That'll drive shares down. Then once the ship has set sail... He'll announce that it's setting a world's record pace, and that'll drive shares up, and supposedly he'll make his fortune. An evil British plutocrat, scheming to profit off the backs of everyone else. During the film, Ismay urges the ship's captain to go faster and faster, offering him $1,000 for each hour the ship arrives ahead of schedule. Now, of course, there's a voice of reason, someone pressing Captain Smith to follow a safer course. That's a fictional first officer, a German, yes, he's German in the film, by the name of Peterson. Ian Garden is the author of The Third Reich's Celluloid War. He is the archetypal officer who keeps on warning the captain, you're going too fast, we've not got enough lifeboats, we're going to hit an iceberg, and they refuse to listen to him. And you'd expect him to go down with the ship, and he almost does, but... He's saved by doing a good deed. He hears a small child crying who has been left by his plutocratic mother to die. He rescues the young girl, carries her to a waiting lifeboat, where, by the way, his love interest is waiting, and both he and the young girl are saved. So the hero is a German. Titanic was an incredibly expensive film for its time. The special effects were state-of-the-art, and it took a long time to make, too long as it turned out. Work on the film began in 1940, when Germany's military was conquering all. But by the time the film's ready for its premiere screening in Berlin, things aren't going so well, and Joseph Goebbels has second thoughts. Again, Randall Beitwork. The propaganda leadership says, this really isn't a very good idea to show scenes of panic, mass death, and so forth going on, because of course now we're in the spring of 1943, British and American bombers are coming over day and night. The Stalingrad defeat is clear to everybody. So the film just doesn't look propagandistically good. The Nazis' Titanic was a piece of propaganda based on a tragedy. But the film seemed only to beget further tragedies. Ian Garden says, look what happened to the director, Herbert Selpine. 
he was overheard complaining one day about the war getting in the way of the making of his film. Selpin's complaints got back to Goebbels, who demanded an apology. But Selpin was a very stubborn man. He refused to to apologize. He was put into a prison cell, and the next day he was found hanged dead from his braces in that cell. Was it suicide? Was it murder? Most think the latter. In any case, that was a single man. What happened later? Well, you couldn't write it. The main tragedy is that the ship that they used to film the outside scenes on was a ship called the the Cap Arcona. Now that ship, at the end of the war, was sunk by mistake by the Allies as it was carrying of all people five thousand concentration camp prisoners, and they were all killed. Hitler had met his end days earlier. The remaining Nazi leaders were trying to cover up their crimes by removing people left in the camps. Some also think the Nazis disguised the ship as a troop carrier, almost inviting an attack. So there were far more people killed on that ship than were actually killed in the real Titanic. It's a terribly sad story. For the world, I'm Alex Galifant. In France, Euro Disney celebrates its 20th anniversary today. The mega theme park outside Paris got off to a rocky start and is still losing money. But the French seem to have come around to Mickey, Goofy, and the gang. Last year, Euro Disney had some 16 million visitors, twice as many as the Louvre in Paris. Some Frenchmen are hoping a different sort of theme park can do better. It doesn't have an official name yet, so let's just call it Napoleon Land. That's right, a theme park centered around the 19th-century French emperor Napoleon Bonaparte. The world's Jerry Haddon has our story from Montreux, France. Here on a bridge in Montreux, there's a giant statue of Napoleon. He's pointing towards Vienna, one of his many points of conquest. But technically, he's also pointing to some open fields here, just across the river. One potential site of his very own theme park, Napoleon Land. Montreux's mayor Yves Jago is the guy behind Napoleon Land. He says he's been toying with the idea since Minnie and Mickey first came to France. Lorsque le parc Disney a ouvert, en plaisantant, les responsables de Disney ont dit. Before Euro Disney opened, he says, a French tourism official said, "Disney won't have competition unless one day we make a theme park for Napoleon." Napoleon Bonaparte is the only figure we have who can do battle with Mickey Mouse. So now the battle is on, or nearly, and the town of Montreux seems to be the perfect setting. It's pretty, there's open land, and it's only an hour south of Paris, and it's the site of Napoleon's last battlefield victory on February 18th, 1814. Townsfolk consider him a hero and support the Napoleon Land project. Napoleon is a great man. He's a great warrior. An elderly resident named Madame Tongui says he was a great man, a great warrior. So there's local support. There's also a slogan: "Enter into history." But Napoleon plus theme park would add up to what exactly? For starters, Mergego says there'd be a daily reenactment of the Battle of Montreux. There'd also be a huge model sphinx and pyramids to cover Napoleon's brief presence in Egypt. Jego says even Napoleon's failed conquest of Russia has theme park potential. Par exemple, dans les attractions que nous pourrions imaginer, Napoléon, c'est la conquête de la grande guerre de Russie. Think of the war on Russia, he says. The snow, the cold. This could be the pretext for an indoor ski dome. You could ski between the Russian troops and Napoleon's forces with cannon fire all around you. It's exciting. You'd be skiing down through history, he says. But that history itself is complicated. For many, Napoleon is a hero, a great Republican lawmaker, and so on. For others, he was a brutal invader. Even here in Montreux, you can find controversy. 
Down the street from Napoleon's statue, there's a museum dedicated to the battle. It includes a model of the Montreux battlefield with tiny plastic soldiers. Some 6,000 of them died in the fighting. French schoolteacher Isabelle Maté is visiting with her class of 10-year-olds. She says her kids often ask why Napoleon waged so much war. She says Napoleon was a great general and emperor, but often what my kids retain is that he launched battles in which many men died for nothing. He wanted to build a great empire, but in the end, he left us with the borders we have today. Mayor Jego is well aware that not everyone reveres Bonaparte. So is perhaps the theme park project's most important supporter, Charles Napoleon. Charles is a descendant of Napoleon's youngest brother, Jerome, and an advisor for Napoleonland. He says mixing history with entertainment doesn't mean sweeping the less savory sides of Napoleon under the rug. I think this, this project has to include these different point of views about this man, you know, Napoleon. And this is a real challenge, you know, to integrate in a French project this worldwide vision about Napoleon. So we have to create this committee of uh, historians which will help to define the project. The other overriding question is whether France has room for another theme park. Besides Disney, there are a handful of others, including one centered around comics legend Asterix. Charles Napoleon and Mère Jago say if they can build a Napoleon land and make it fun without trivializing French history, the tourists will come. For The World, I'm Jerry Haddon, Montreux, France. Authorities in Rome, Italy, don't want their most famous landmark to look like a theme park, so they're cracking down on fake Roman soldiers who hang out around the Colosseum. These so-called centurions are known to prey on tourists near the ancient arena. They harass the visitors until they agree to have their picture taken with them, then charge huge sums for the service. Officials in Rome got fed up with the spectacle and shut it down. Now officials are drafting new rules for the centurions. They'll have to apply for a special permit, pay taxes, and wear authentic-looking costumes. No more sneakers under their ancient Roman skirts. And the reenactors will be confined to specific areas where the tourists will approach them. No word yet on where that will be. The fake centurions want to continue working next to the Colosseum. Two of the men in full-period dress climbed to the top of the arena today to make their point. They were cheered on by some tourists who weren't quite sure what it was all about. To answer today's geo-quiz, we turn to the police in Serbia. They announced today that they've recovered a valuable painting that was stolen from a Swiss museum back in 2008. The Boy in the Red Vest by Paul Cezanne was one of several masterpieces taken in what was described as one of the biggest art thefts in Europe. Journalist Alexander Vasovic in Belgrade is following the case. So, Alexander, has the painting been positively identified now as the missing Cezanne? Serbian interior minister Ivica Dacic said a Swiss expert has authenticated the painting as genuine. And yes, it is Paul Cezanne, the boy in the red vest or the boy in the red waistcoat. The, the value of the painting is set at about 110 million Swiss francs. He said that at the press conference just minutes ago. He also said four people were arrested in connection with the case some of them in the capital Belgrade and the others in the city of Chachak, which is about 150 kilometers southwest of the capital. Okay, so Belgrade and the city of Chachak are the answers to today's GeoQuiz. $120 million, that's a lot of money. You were just at this press conference. What was the scene? I mean, did they have the painting on display? The authorities didn't show the painting. However, they were very pleased 
several police uh, forces or law enforcement agencies from several countries were involved in this investigation. The four suspects were apparently trying to sell the painting for three million euros. One of the suspects is the actual perpetrator of the heist in Switzerland. The other three were, were helpers. They said that the painting was hidden for almost four years now. So Paul Cezanne's The Boy in the Red Vest was uh, one of four Impressionist masterpieces uh, that disappeared from the Zurich Museum in 2008. Two were found just after the heist, uh, but there was this one and another one. What's the news on the painting by Degas? There were no information about that Degas painting. Clearly now the investigation will be ongoing and it will probably shed more light on what happened with the remaining painting. So, in Belgrade, is it a stranger to these art heist cases? I mean, is it a surprise to the people there that this painting turned up in Belgrade? Well, this is not the first case. A major paintings or masterpieces were discovered in Serbia last year. Uh, last October, Serbian police uncovered two Picasso's painting stolen from an art gallery near Zurich. And yes, it's an ongoing process here mainly because the Balkans has inherited very porous borders after the collapse of former Yugoslavia. Borders were easier to cross than now. Uh, Also, a number of people got rich, either by working abroad or various ways and means, and they were either purchasing paintings, some people were actually stealing paintings, some of the uh, works of art were stolen during the wars on the, in, the, in former Yugoslavia. So all of that is gradually floating to the surface these days. Apparently, the Belgrade police uh, went to great lengths to show just what a dramatic arrest this was uh, of these suspects in, in this uh, art heist. What did you see at the press conference? The police showed us video of the actual arrest, including what appeared to be a very exciting or adrenaline-filled car chase and stopping a van, and in the van they found the painting under something what appeared to be like a door panel or something. Police said they found weapons on the suspects as well as 1,600,000 euros in cash. Then they showed us suspects being led by policemen. And the painting will apparently go to Switzerland as soon as possible. It will be returned to the gallery in Switzerland. Belgrade's own Thomas Crown affair. It was actually pretty exciting. And let me just say that, yes, this comes as a very good publicity stunt for the interior minister, Dutch, who is also a presidential candidate in the upcoming May 6 elections. Reporter Alexander Vesovich in Belgrade, thanks for your time. Okay, it was a pleasure. You can check out Cezanne's painting, The Boy in the Red Vest, at theworld.org. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. The Democratic Republic of Congo has enjoyed a fragile peace since 2009. That year, rebels in the east of the Central African nation cut a deal with the government of President Laurent Kabila. The warlords and their troops were integrated into the National Army in exchange for various concessions. But yesterday, President Kabila issued an arrest warrant for perhaps the most powerful of those former warlords, a man called Bosco Ntaganda, who's wanted by The Hague for war crimes. Now all of Congo is on edge. Reporter Michael Kavanaugh is in the Congolese capital, Kinshasa. He told me a bit more about the man at the center of the crisis. 
Bosco Antigonda is a general in the Congolese army, officially, but for years he's been a rebel. Uh, he's a Tutsi. Uh, uh, he's part of the ethnic Tutsi group, which is found throughout the, the Central African region. He joined the army in 2009 after a peace deal here, but he continues to to kill and to and and, and to smuggle uh, minerals and and weapons. And he's been a, a major source of insecurity in Eastern Congo for several well for more than a decade. Right. And uh, as you say, an ally of President Kabila, at least since this uh, peace deal was brokered in 2009. But he goes on uh, continuing with the with these crimes, apparently. Uh, how does President Kabila feel about that? Kabila has been saying since 2009 that he cared first and foremost about peace and then about justice. So, so of course, Antigonda has had this arrest warrant uh, hanging over his head, but Kabila has refused to arrest him because he felt like the relationship with the Tutsi community, with Rwanda, was more important and that keeping Bosco in power was actually something that would help stabilize the region. At this point, it seems like Kabila no longer thinks that's true and that, if it, that it's actually so unstable because of Bosco that it might be time for him to be arrested. Now, we'll see if that actually can happen. It's possible that saying that he's going to arrest Bosco will anger enough of the, of the Tutsi community there that we might see more fighting and more instability. The arrest warrant uh, you're talking about was issued by the International Criminal Court. Why do they want Bosco in Taganda? Intaganda was part of a rebel group in the early 2000s. Now, this is when Congo was in the middle of, a, of a, a major series of wars that involved several African countries. And and he was part of a rebel group uh, that killed hundreds of people. Of course, what, what the ICC wants him specifically for is for trafficking in child soldiers and for using child soldiers. His partner, his actually his commander at the time, was just convicted by the ICC last month. And this is actually the thing that has kind of spurred this. And so that's why we're seeing this kind of pressure. That's why these questions were raised right now. And uh, that seems to also be the, the pressure behind Kabila to try and apprehend Bosco and Taganda. That's part of it, too. What we also saw is Kabila was just reelected in a very controversial campaign. Uh, the international community, the West in particular, has says that the elections were not credible. And they're, they're, they're trying to use that leverage to get Kabila to make progress on certain things. One of those things, of course, is the arrest of Bosco, because he does continue to cause instability in this region. So could, could Kabila and Bosco and Daganda come to blows? It's very possible. Bosco is vicious. I interviewed a man uh, two years ago who was killed by Bosco about a year and a half ago, who said in my interview that it is easier for Bosco to kill a man than it is to order a soda. And this is something that we've seen over the past few years in eastern Congo. And you could very easily see him kind of retreating to the, the forests where he's from and consolidate his power and, and try and basically protect himself and, and hold out. And, and there could be a small war that happens. Um, you know, it, it's, it's also possible that uh, Rwanda could step in. It's possible that, that Kabila could negotiate some kind of settlement with him so that he retreats to his farm or or something like that and just stays out of the spotlight. Reporter Michael Cavanaugh in Kinshasa. Michael, thanks for telling us about uh, General Bosco in Taganda. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks very much. Let's shift gears now. For some Peruvians, pan flute bands playing in subway stations are a musical cliche, but one rock band from Peru's capital, Lima, wants to bring that traditional music from the Andean highlands to urban ears. Mitra Taj has a story. Julio Perez is the lead singer of La Sarita, one of Peru's most popular bands. 
He likes rock and roll, like a lot of people in Lima. But he says for too long now, people here have preferred American-style rock and pop to the musical richness of the rest of Peru. I come from a typical middle-class family from Lima, and we used to live in a bubble. We were never connected to the real Peru, the rural Peru, the peasant Peru, the indigenous Peru, which is Massa Peru. Then came Peru's bloody civil war in the 80s and 90s. Our world fell apart. Our world of privilege, our paradise. From one day to the next, that world disappeared. And that's when we found ourselves with the migrants. Waves of migrants fleeing the violence and poverty in the provinces poured into Lima. They brought new sounds, music from the Amazon, the Andes, and the coast. Perez picked up what he heard and fused it with a rock he already knew. La Sarita brought in new band members over the years. An Andean harpist, a flute player, a traditional violinist. Some lyrics are sung in Quechua, a native language. But in the beginning, not everyone loved the fusion. I remember 14 years ago, during our first concerts, people would insult us because we'd mix rock with chicha. Chicha is Peruvian cumbia. And Chicha was synonymous with people from the mountains who'd come to invade Lima to take up space to get the city dirty. You know, all those cliches and prejudices. So we were getting rock and roll dirty. Rock is gringo, and we were getting it dirty. Their new sound eventually won over Lima's hipsters. This cumbia is one of their most popular songs. It's called Huachiman, or Watchman, and it's about an underappreciated security guard. All these songs we do are based on real life. This is a learning process. We learn something and we do a song. This song on La Cerita's latest album celebrates a rite of passage familiar to many limeños, especially migrants, finally putting the roof on the house you and your family have built, bit by bit, over the years, often on squatted land. That's why you see Lima, and it's a half-built city. Lima's a brick. Everything is built gradually. You start with the foundation, and then build the walls, and the last thing you do is the roof. That's an achievement. And so you have a party to celebrate. With their new CD, Identidad, La Cerita is topping off their effort to construct what they call the New Rock of Peru, a party everyone's invited to. For The World, I'm Mitra Taj in Lima. And that's all for us today. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Marco Werman. We'll be back tomorrow. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes that a great nation deserves great art. 
the Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs, and by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can. PRI Public Radio International.